Turn please with me in the book of Jonah. We'll give you an extra second or two. Jonah's sometimes a little bit harder to find. It's right in the middle of my Thompson Sheehan Bible. It's easy for me to find, but then I was reading it this morning before I come out. Jonah chapter 2, please. In fact, it wouldn't take an awful time, an awful lot of time to read the whole of the book. There's only four chapters in it. But we're going to concentrate our thoughts really on what we find in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 as well. But we're going to read from chapter 2. We might just break in at verse 17 of the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 17. Of course, the verse divisions and chapter divisions are not inspired. They were supplied sometime after the completion of the canon of Scripture. They're a great help, of course, to us. But we cannot take those divisions as inspired. In fact, the chapter divisions that we have today were brought in, I think, in the year 1227 by the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton by name. He brought them in to aid with reading and with study. The verse divisions come in much later. In fact, it was about 200 years later, 1448, a rabbi, a Hebrew rabbi, divided the Old Testament up into verses. His name is simply recorded in history as Rabbi Nathan. And then many years after that, for the, maybe you're familiar with the 1551 Stephen's text that we get, that's the base original text that we get our authorized version from. Well, it was Robert Stevens for that text, the 1551 text, that he divided the New Testament up into the various verse divisions that we have today. While very helpful, it allowed you to find this. It allows us to systematically read Scripture so much easier while that's all the case, it is also the case as well that this verse division and chapter division is not inspired. I would argue that verse 17 of chapter 1 really belongs to chapter 2. So we'll read it as part of that chapter, please. Now it tells us in verse 17, verse, verse 17, I was going to say verse 17, verse 1, that little statement of fact, I call it. In fact, I highlight that, especially over verse 17, and indeed the same is the case with chapter 2, the last verse, that tells us how the Lord spake unto the fish and had vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. These statements of fact, because these are portions, these are verses in particular that the Bible critic thinks he has a field day on, thinks that they can disprove God's word basing it on verses such as this. But we, of course, believe that the Scriptures not only to contain, but to be the living Word of the living God. And should this church ever depart from that truth, we'll have no farther part in it, because God's Word is just that, God's Word. Now look at verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then, we ought to always stop and pause, especially here we're not in an eschatological passage of Scripture, a, a passage that prophetically points us forward. But every time we come to that word then, it gives us sequence of events. That's the case here in chapter 2, verse 1, first word. 
then, only after this had happened, only he had been brought so low, only then did Jonah pray. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And in fact, here we have from verse 2 right through to almost the end, verse 2 to 9, this divinely inspired and indeed recorded and preserved record of what was actually said in that prayer unto God. How privileged we are to contain this document. He said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardst my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then, there's that word again, then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about even to the soul, the depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. You see these great rays of light, these great statements of fact and confidence that are interspersed throughout this prayer, the last half of verse 6, jumps off the page at me as I read it now. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Verse 7, when my soul fainteth within me, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came in unto thee, unto thy holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. And then we have that lovely little statement of fact again that Jonah uses. Instead, we could say, instead of where we would normally put an amen. In fact, the words that are recorded behind and above my head in this pulpit here and carried off. Salvation is of the Lord. And then verse 10 tells us what happened immediately after this prayer was uttered. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Amen. We do pray that the Lord himself might bless this, the reading of his own inspired word to each of our hearts this morning. I'd ask you please to stand with me for a moment, just as we come before the Lord in prayer. Let us change our attitude, let us change our position, and let us wait before the Lord, even just now, please. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee, Lord, for this first part of the meeting that we've enjoyed today. We've been able to sing together, we've been able to worship thee in giving, and giving. Lord, thou hast given us so much. We pray, Lord, that thou would bless even every penny, every thing that has come in for thy service, even in this place. Even bless those psalms and hymns that have ascended into heaven. We trust well-pleasing that our worship might indeed be well-pleasing unto thee. Do undertake. But, Lord, I pray especially for blessing upon this thy word now as we come to it. Well, thank thee, Lord, that we can rejoice in this fact that, as Jonah said it, in the depth of the depths, 
that salvation truly is of the Lord. And I pray that thou would bless us even now, as we might consider this portion, consider especially Jonah's prayer. It is for thy glory and thy glory alone we pray. Amen. You know, the story of Jonah and the fish is a story that captivates and has captivated the imagination and indeed the hearts of perhaps millions down through the years. But of course it is one of those passages of scripture that while we teach our children the basis and the rudimentary truths that we have in scripture from passages and from accounts such as this, at the same time there are those who think they're clever in their own eyes, those men and women, those young people who are the higher critics, in fact born away back in several centuries ago in Germany, the higher critic, who think they have a field day whenever they come to passages such as this, who think they can use verses like this to extend their argument that you can't really believe what you read in the Word of God. Yes, you can believe some of it, they'll say. Yes, Scripture merely contains the Word of God, but it isn't in its entirety. And we can't, or in entirety, trust what the Word of God actually teaches. But of course, that is not the position of this preacher, nor is it the position of this denomination, this church. We believe this not merely to contain, but rather to be, in fact, that's part of our ordination oaths, to be the Word of God. You know, it reminds me of a true story that I heard one time about a, an old brethren lady that was going around local doors in her area, knocking doors, speaking to people, to individuals, to men and women, whoever she would meet about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, unbeknown to her, she knocked the door of one of these modernist preachers. And he thought he was going to have a field day. She didn't know who he was. He knew who she was. But he very quickly steered and turned the conversation around to the book of Jonah. To what we've read even in the last verse of, verse of chapter 1, that 17th verse, about how the Lord had prepared this great fish to swallow up Jonah for the preservation of his life, and how at the last verse of chapter 2 it vomited or spat him up on the beach, safe and sound. Surely you don't believe all of that nonsense, he said. But of course he had an answer to that as quick as a flash. If my Bible told me that Jonah swallowed the fish or swallowed the wheel whole, oh, I would believe that, she said. Well, he came in again and, he, and really she was attacked that day on his doorstep and it went on back and forth for a bit and he said to her eventually, what if you get to heaven and Jonah's not even there? Well, then again, as quick as a flash, look at him eyeball to eyeball, she said, well, then you can ask him. But he knew what that meant, that he wasn't even going to heaven at all with the attitude that he had on Scripture. She went away. In fact, she said to that man, I not only believe what my Bible says contained within the leather covers of this book, but I believe in the very covers of the book themselves because it tells me on the cover that it is indeed God's holy word. And that's the position in which we stand even today. But I want us to consider what, and I think we've nailed this down tight, what actually happened on that occasion. 
I want us to think about Jonah to narrow it in a wee bit. We could really preach on the whole chapter. There's a series there, but we could give it a skim over the, the whole of the book, all four chapters. But we want to think, we want to focus in today for the few moments that we have remaining to us about Jonah's prayer. And before we even get to Jonah's prayer, before we even get to that word in chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed. Before we even get to that, I want us to consider something else in relation to Jonah's prayer. And that is, first of all, Jonah's refusal to pray. You know, it struck me as I read this account over and over again. And I read this whole book this morning over and over again, even before I come out to take the meeting today. And I've read it so many times in the past. But it struck me recently, whenever I read this account, really it struck me for the first time recently, just how bitter and just how twisted and just how cold at heart Jonah really was. You think about the first three verses. Think of what it gives us there in the first three verses. You see, in chapter 1, verse, this is chapter 1 we're talking about. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the Lord God Almighty had actually, what a privilege this was for Jonah when you think about it, had actually revealed himself to him. Just think of the privilege he had in that alone. Not only did he reveal himself to him, not only did he speak to him on that occasion, but he actually gave him a specific task to do particular pointers and where he wanted him to go and what he would have him to do, the very message that he would have him to say. But then, and it is a big but, then we read of Jonah's absolute refusal in what is not recorded for us here in the Word of God, what it does not say. It doesn't say that Jonah entered into any sort of dialogue or prayed to the Lord or replied to the Lord or spoke to the Lord in any shape or form. But here we read of Jonah's absolute refusal in any shape or form to commune with his God. Just think of the blessing that he experienced in those first two verses. Look what it tells us in verse 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. The son of Amittai saying, specific word, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Surely we should have read there in verse 3 about how, the, how Jonah, his response to the Lord or his reply to the Lord or what he said to the Lord or what he, what he came back to the Lord with. But not a single word. And it just struck me as I considered that and as I thought about that in my own secret place, in my own study at home, it just stuck, struck me about how better a place Jonah must have been in. Now I know there was a lot of hatred and history. Sectarian hatred or history, if you like, if you want to call it that, even to bring it into our own contact here in Northern Ireland, between Jonah and his people, the Jew, and between the Ninevites, Oh, how they hated them. How he clearly hated them. You see, I was reading up a little bit about this city, Nineveh, this morning. It really lay to the north of modern-day Iraq, to the east of the, rigor, of the River Tiger, or whatever way you pronounce it. I'm not going to say it again. It's bad enough to be wrong once, never mind twice. But it was 
Apparently, according to the sources that I was reading on this morning, reading up on this city, it was 30, it stretched along 30 miles of the bank of that river. And it was 10 mile wide in places. A huge city. We can't really imagine the size of that city. In fact, in that particular account that I was reading, I read different accounts, but on one of those particular accounts that I read, it spoke of how Nineveh was the biggest city, the greatest city Population and size-wise and commerce-wise and trade-wise, it was right beside that river for a reason, for thousands of years. And how they really oppressed the Jewish people. What hatred there must have been. But while, to set all that aside for a little minute, while that all may have been the case, while Jonah may have had that reluctance to go and win that particular people we do not read of him commune with God. This relationship breakdown, if you like, between Jonah and the Lord, on the other hand. That's why I entitled my first point, Jonah's refusal to pray. We'll think of other occasions when the Lord appeared to people, and individuals, and commune with them directly and give them a task to do that they didn't want to do. Turn your attention to, we'll not ask you to turn to it for the sake of time. You know it well, I'm sure. It's depicted on every pulpit drop within the Free Presbyterian Church. I'm assuming that's the burning bush in front of me. I didn't check before I come up. But the burning bush, we'll read about in Exodus chapter 3, of how the Lord appeared to Moses in the backside of the desert. And how we read in that chapter of how he, he, he saw the bush that burned was not consumed and said, I will now turn aside and see this, this bush that burned and is not consumed. And the Lord had a word, a message, a task for him to do but at least Moses entered into dialogue he didn't want to do it initially he refused initially but there was that back and forward there was that communing with God there was that speaking to God that we miss in its entirety in Jonah chapter 1 I thought about that I thought about that personally I thought about that even who may be here today and who might be within earshot of my voice or who this message that the Lord has led upon my heart for today, who this message may be for today. Perhaps you are in a similar situation. Perhaps you yourself, there's little bells ringing with you when I speak about how this man was so bitter against the Lord initially that he refused in any shape or form to commune with him. Maybe that's where this morning finds you. Just how dark, just how rebellious a place Jonah was in. Perhaps that's where you are today. Perhaps we're bitter about something that's happened in the past. Perhaps something has soured us completely and turned us off completely from trying to reach out or to witness to others. Never mind even speaking to the Lord God Almighty. You see, in verse 1 and 2 of that chapter, Jonah was spoken to by the Lord. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The way the words are framed, there's no doubt about that. But, you see verse 3, the way it starts off, introduced with that three-letter word. What's the word? The word but. That word's always a turning point in Scripture. That word's always a hinge word. And I'll tell you what, your, your elder was talking about gates, when putting gates on. Well, you know, a gate, even a big long gate, even a big heavy wide gate, swings on a wee hinge that's maybe only an inch in diameter. 
and great doors and great gates swing on small hinges. Look at the word but, that's a small hinged. We'll have a swinging away here, verse 1 and 2, positive. Verse 1 and 2, upbeat. Verse 1 and 2, speaking really about what the Lord would have us to do, a positive thing, what he would have us to do. But in verse 3, Jonah got up without a word. Jonah rose rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord without a word. In fact, that little phrase of how he was to flee from the presence of the Lord occurs not only once, but twice in that single verse alone. Do you see it there in verse 3 at the start of the verse? He rose up to flee unto Tarsus from the presence of the Lord, and then at the end of the verse, to go with them unto Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. What do we find? They're like, they form nearly like parentheses or brackets around that verse. What do we find within that parenthesis? He found a ship going to Tarsus. So what did he do? He paid the fare. And he went down thereof into it to go with them. He was communing with the world to run from God, and it cost him. Oh yes, it cost him in the pocket. It cost him dearly. It cost him in his relationship. We'll later see, as we'll work our way down through this chapter, we'll later see how it cost him even in his witness with those men that he sealed with. Oh, because he was backslidden and backsliding from God. In fact, he was determined to backslide from the Lord. Determined to flee from the presence of the Lord. We don't read in verse 3 even. It would be bad enough if we did. But we don't read in verse 3 how he just lay back lazily and did nothing. He went further than that. He actually got himself up and put expense and energy and sweat and thought into it to flee down from the presence of the Lord. And I just wonder this morning, I'm telling you, that's a challenge to me. There's times I'm so bitter at times and twisted at times and cold at heart at times we find it hard to commune with the Lord in fact sometimes we're so far from the Lord maybe you're here maybe you're at that point today so far from the Lord that the evil one is whispering a message a deceptive message in your ear ah you can't come back to him now you're a hypocrite if you do You've sinned too far now. You've gone too far now. You've done that thing. You've, you've done it now. It's, it's gone too far for you. Well, let me tell you today, if you're in that backslidden state, if you're in that such a cold at heart state that that describes your condition today, he stands as the father of the prodigal did, wishing and longing and waiting for the prodigal to come back, for you to come back to his dear loving arms. You see, that's a deceptive whisper from the devil. That's a hiss from the serpent himself to tell you that you can't pray. You see, it cost this man dearly that refusal to pray, that backsliding, that going down from God. Let me ask you this evening, this evening, we're not this evening yet. I plan to finish early afternoon. Don't worry, brother. Let me ask you early this afternoon, now, right now, let me ask you now, do you understand, do you really take it in, do I understand the importance of prayer, do the importance of communing before the Lord, of spending that time, of talking, of keeping that close, that short account with the Lord, do we understand and realize how important that is? Let me tell you this, the devil knows the importance of prayer. Oh, he knows how important it is to keep you from those set times of prayer in your own personal place. 
the set times of prayer the, the, and places of worship such as this. He knows how important that is. How is it on prayer meeting night, whatever night your prayer meeting's held on, that's the night about six or half six, you're tarder that night and you have more on that night and you're busier that night than any other night of the week. How is that? It's because of that pressure upon us from the world, the flesh and the devil to keep us from the place of prayer. Let me tell you today, prayer, communion with God is an absolute necessity and Jonah found it the hard way. He found that out the hard way. I love some of the statements that Charles Spurgeon, the great C.H. Spurgeon, minister, Baptist minister in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London for many, many years. I love some of the things that he came out with. He had such a short, pithy way of nailing a point. Somebody asked him one time, Mr. Spurgeon, and they were dead serious in this, Mr. Spurgeon, which is more important, reading God's word or praying to the Lord? Which is more important? You know, he just threw his head back and laughed at that one. And then he said this. He said, you know what that is like asking me? It's like asking me, which is more important, breathing out, that's prayer, or breathing in, that's reading God's word. You can't do one without the other. In fact, if you try to cut one or both out, within about four minutes, you'll be on the floor dead. We must breathe in and out. We must commune with the Lord. We must talk to the Lord. We must pray to the Lord. We must take that time and pray to the Lord. This man was in such a cold, dark place that he could do none of those things. He just ran. He just fled. He turned up and ran in the opposite direction in this false belief that he would be able to get away from the Lord. But you know, it doesn't work out like that. Look at what it tells us on down through the verse. The Lord went after him. Verse 4. Another word, another verse that's introduced with that little word, but. But the Lord sent out a great wind unto the sea. You see, there was nowhere, there is nowhere beyond God's reach. Isn't it wonderful how whenever the Lord, this strike, this has struck me over this past couple of months. This has challenged me, not only from this portion, but almost everywhere I read in the scriptures, especially the gospels, but, but here in verses like this as well, of how the Lord gives a command to the elements, to nature. Immediately they obey. Even to the demons and the devils. We read that in the Gospels of how the Lord commanded this demon to move and pass out of this man and that man or this boy or that boy as we read in the Gospels. And how those demons even immediately obey. But how it is whenever the Lord gives us a command, gives us an instruction. Very often, and Jonah's a prime example of this, very often we drag our heels. We've already mentioned Moses. He's another example. We see that very often in the scriptures of how the Lord gives a command, of how the Lord tells men to do something, and we're so slow to respond. Hey, that's a challenge to me. Look what it tells us in the next verse, verse 5. The mariners were afraid of what was happening. They, it tells us there at the end of verse 4 how the ship was like to be broken. Of course, they in verse 7, verse 5 tells us of how the mariners were afraid. What did they do? They cried every man unto his God. Now, what is that? To me to press that little statement there. All these men who followed false gods cried unto them. Such was their panic. But what do we find Jonah doing? Surely we find him praying at this point. Do we? Let's look at the verse. 
They cried every man unto his God, verse 5, cast their wares into the, that were in the ship, into the sea, to lighten it of them. But, again that word but, I've it underlined in my copy of scripture here. But again, another turning point. They were praying. Now they were doing what they knew. It was to a false God, a deaf God, a God who could not see, a God who could not act or hear. But they were at least trying something. Not so with Jonah. But, see the heart of verse 5? But Jonah was gone down, again that reference to that downward train, gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast. God's word, every single word that's here is there for a reason. There's nothing superfluous in the word of God, nothing just put in to, to pad it out. That's what the word superfluous means. I'll, every preacher pads out and waffles and puts in superfluous language not so with scripture look at that verse again what verse what word am i referring to he not only was asleep at the end of verse five was fast asleep he was in a deep sleep so much so that he had no idea of what was going on around him does that describe the church of jesus christ today is that where we are we like to come in and polish everything up and keep everything nice and meanwhile the world out there is burning and I say this literally going to hell and what are we doing about it are we like Jonah not only sleeping but fast asleep oh I can still hear Dr. Paisley as he cried from his own pulpit there in Ravenhill where he ministered so many years the church of Jesus Christ is sleeping today a raised sleeping church is that not the message that we need to hear today? Is that not the message that we need to hear from this and every other pulpit? To waken up and look what's going on around us and to get to our knees and to pray? I believe in the power of prayer. He did. When all ended and this man ended up on his knees, God heard prayer from the depths. God answered. God heard his prayers. You think back of the 1859 revival, and I think I've preached on that before from this church or maybe in the old building how those four young men in September 1857, those four young men were burdened to pray. Robert Carlyle, John Wallace, Jeremiah Manelli, James McCook, and those four young men burdened above anything else to get on their knees before God and to plead with him to move. And of course he did. Are we sleeping? Look, we'll work our way on down. I had several points today. I might just get to point one. What happened after we read of how this man was fast asleep. Look at verse 6. So the shipmaster came to him. Imagine this. The captain of the ship, the top man, the most senior man there, who was so scared uh, for his own life and for the life of those around him. He came to him and he said unto him, now what did he refer to him as? We have tags, we have names, Christian, good living. All these tags, all these names, some of which, I hate the name good living, but I'll take the name of Christ. I want to be as Christ-like as I can. In fact, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Why? It was really a mockery. But they took it and wore it as a badge of honor because they wanted to be no one as Christ-like. What was this man referred to? O sleeper. Arise, O sleeper. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. In fact, this shipmaster, remember Jonah, still had not uttered a single word to God in prayer. And the shipmaster now was actually challenging him, saying, you get up from your sleep and you do what you should have been doing all along and 
plead to God, your God, plead to Jehovah. That's what the capital G and God means. Plead to Jehovah, if so be, that he, God, will think upon us that we perish not. Now surely verse 7 begins with, and Jonah prayed. No. Still. Still at this point he refused to pray. Still at this point he was so dark, so angry against God perhaps, I don't know. That he was determined not to pray. In fact we read right down through that chapter we still don't find him praying. We get to verse 17, the first verse of our reading. Really belonging to the next chapter we see of how they threw him overboard. And now the fish had prepared, or the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Did he pray then? Still didn't pray. He only prayed after spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Do you see that? Do you see where the then that I highlighted has been so important? Do you see where the then finally does occur? Then the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Full stop. New sentence. Then, only then, did Jonah begin to pray. do apologize. I was hoping this morning to be able to get to Jonah's prayer. We're only getting to it now and time is almost gone. But we'll mention this just in, as we come to the close of the meeting because it is important of the depths that the Lord allowed him to go. Why? Because of his sin, because of his backsliding, because of his rebellion against the Lord. In fact, he went right down to the very bottoms of the mountains. Doesn't that tell us that in verse 6? Look at the words there. In fact, verse 1 right through to verse 6 gives us an idea of the depths to which Jonah had plummeted on that occasion. But let me tell you this for your encouragement today. Let me tell you this, dear church, dear individual, somebody watching along online, and as I talk to you and preach to you, I preach to myself, one finger pointing out to you, three back to myself. Why? Because I need this. I need this encouragement. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 2. I cried by reason of mine affliction. I highlighted this. I dwelt there in the reading, I remember. And he heard me. No matter how low we are, no matter how far from God we are, no matter how rebellious we've been, how far we've sinned and slipped back against God and his holy word, when we do come back to him, he hears us. And not only that, he hears us and he answers our prayer. In fact, twice in verse 2, the first part of verse 2, and look at the end of verse 2, and thou heardst my voice. Double emphasis there yet again of how the Lord heard his cry and heard his prayer. Let me say this, no matter how far down you've gone, God hears and answers your prayers. Isn't that such an encouragement? If we would but grasp that truth, that God hears, both hears and answers our prayers. He's both, both one who is willing to answer our prayer and able, on the other hand, oh, the prayer meetings will be packed. But they're not. May the Lord encourage us to do what he did, to pray, to get the vows that he made, the I wills, verse 4, verse 9, I will, I will. He had such confidence as he prayed, in fact, very often that happens. We start off in prayer and we're low, we're down, we're despondent, we're downhearted. And as we begin to pray and continue on in prayer, by the time we'll leave the place of prayer, there's a spring in our step. Isn't that right? How the Lord blesses us in the place of prayer. In fact, that's 
Really where I want to get us to today, verse 10. In fact, look at verse 9. Leading into verse 10, really he had just finished that prayer. Just finishing. And if you could almost think of it as he was there in that cavernous area that was the belly of the fish, the, the words were almost echoing off the walls of that, the inside of the fish. Whenever God spake to that fish. Salvation is off the Lord. That was the last word of his prayer was Jehovah, God, the Lord, and the Lord spake unto the fish and had vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You think of the you think of the blessing that flowed from that. You think of the I read those verses this morning, chapter three and four. I'd encourage you to read them. I read those this morning because in those verses, especially chapter three, we have here the greatest revival ever upon earth. Certainly recorded revival. Because the Lord had his servant. The Lord's pleased to use the human instrument. And even though we had to be dragged along kicking and screaming if you like. Even though we had to be brought from this low point. The Lord brought him up to that point where he was able to preach. Not only to the ones and twos but to the masses. What a blessing followed. But may the Lord encourage even each of us today. As we think upon these things.